0: Welcome to Ask the Educator, a podcast brought to you by Healthmark Industries. Are you a sterile processing technician or manager? Maybe you work in infection prevention or biomedical engineering. Whether you're a frontline tech, endoscopy tech, OR nurse, or surgical services administrator, you undoubtedly have influence in medical device processing at your facility. In each episode, we speak with experts from the Healthmark Clinical Affairs team industry leaders, or special guests from the trenches to answer your questions and bring you relevant industry information, equipping you for excellence in medical device processing. My name is Kevin Anderson, and I will be your host. Now let's get started. Hey everyone, this is Kevin Anderson, uh, host of the Ask the Educator podcast, and with me I have co-host Adam Okada. And we also brought John Whalen on for this episode because we are continuing our series on ST91. As many of you know, there has been a significant update that was published and we are trying to provide a series on it so that you can kind of take off little bites of it and try and address that in your facility. So John, first off, thanks for joining us. I really appreciate it as always. Yeah. Thanks, Kevin. So why don't we just get right into it? One of the things we wanted to address was the foundation of any processing of devices, and that's point of use. So is there anything that jumps out at you that is new or different, or just anything at all that jumps out at you about point of use treatment? Because this is such an important piece of the puzzle.
1: Yeah. And I guess being that this is my first time talking about ST91 on these podcasts, I just want to reinforce that This is not an update to a previous document, but rather it's a complete new document. So what people need to have in their possession moving forward and reference is the 2021 version of AMESG-91. So when it comes to point of use at the bedside, one of the biggest changes is we introduced the term point of use treatment. Instead of just referring to what happens at the bedside immediately post-procedure as pre-cleaning. It is that, but it's more than that. So it's meant to represent all the tasks that are required immediately following the endoscopic procedure, regardless of where that happens, regardless of how far away the processing room is. Point of use treatment, including pre-cleaning, always happens. It happens at the bedside, whether it's the OR, the clinic room, the endo-procedure room, whatever. And it includes pre-cleaning, but it includes removal of accessories, preparation for transportation. And communication for the processing staff as a handoff.
2: Yeah, so let's get into the communication part of the handoff because I like I like the change. Right, it's it's not just pre cleaning; that's a part of it, but there's a lot of point of use things that need to get done. So, point of use treatment is actually a better terminology to encompass all those things. But talk a little bit about that communication, that handoff between the endoscopy room and then uh, moving into the decontamination area.
1: Right. So historically, it, it did not routinely exist. And as we travel around the country providing consultations to facilities, we're still seeing that people are tripping over how to make it happen. But what the intent of it is, is where you pass along the time that point of use treatment was performed, pre-cleaning was performed to the processing staff so that they then know whether they need to institute delayed processing, extended cleaning. Based on manufacturer's instructions. So, the handoff communication from the procedure room needs to minimally include patient identifier, data procedure, time that point of use treatment was completed, and it can be in various forms. Some facilities, both the processing area and the procedure area, have an electronic software program that they can utilize, or it can be as simple as a patient sticker being passed along with the transport container. And on that sticker, you rate right the time that point of use treatment was performed. Excellent. It's so funny that you mentioned
0: those examples because my follow-up question to that was going to be, what's your favorite process that you've seen out in the field since you've been out there doing consultations? Has anyone really nailed it down? And uh, you, know, you see that somebody actually has it 100% communicated every single time. And which process was most effective? Obviously, you might have your own favorites or whatever, but it's funny that that you went into those examples like that.
1: (laughs) Yeah, well, I I know that from personal experience before. Now, one size doesn't fit all. So even though I might have a particular favorite that I think is good, for one, not everybody can Mm. um, operationalize in the same way, meaning we had scopes routing to a central location from multiple sites or had the electronic software spd had the electronic software but endo and all the clinics did not so we made the standard practice be the patient sticker with the time on it the other options that i think are very helpful visually are to have tags that are on the scope that indicate the time that point of use treatment was performed either handwritten, or we have tags that are activated, you know, where ink bleeds out over a little window right. over an hour. Hour It's the hour that we're looking at, 60 minutes. Once you exceed that, you need to institute delayed processing. But I've seen electronic programs where they had it nailed down every step of the process, including at the beginning, the communication to the processing area but I've also seen paper options, tag options. The best option is the option that works for the facility <laughs> right. that you have, and that is standard and consistent. So it doesn't have to be the most expensive option. It can be a low-tech option and still work.
0: Yeah, I love that point that it has to be the option that works at your facility. I know not everybody has the same you know, capabilities and whatnot. So that's yeah. a very valid point. And kind of On par with that, you know, we want to communicate, obviously, our point of use treatment, but we also need to get this thing ready for transportation from the point of use and get it to decontam. Yep. So what do we need to know about that portion of the process?
1: Right. So we're talking about soil transport at that point, and it's really OSHA guidelines that direct containerized transport transport that's marked as biohazard. So you want to have visually obvious containers so that you always want to create a process such that if it's interrupted for whatever reason, scope gets set aside, container gets set aside, and it isn't in its normal path, or staff member suddenly gets interrupted, called away, you can look at the container that has the scope in and tell what the status of the container is, whether it's patient-ready or whether it's been used, whether it's soiled and should not be used on another patient until it's processed. So it should be solid container transport, solid bottoms inside. The top doesn't need to be solid, but again, it needs to be of appropriate size. Not all scopes are the same size, obviously, and you don't want to cram a colonoscope into too small container, for example, or a small bowel endoscope. So it needs to be of appropriate size. It needs to be solid on the sides and the bottom. And the labeling of the container needs to make it visually obvious that it's soiled contents within.
2: Yeah. And I think that addresses a major issue that we were seeing in the field with these endoscopes is that a lot of them were being carried in pillowcases and bags and uh, all kinds of different uh, unique transport devices. Uh, So actually, to kind of narrow it down and define it as solid sides and bottom, labeled as biohazard. All of those things are really, really important.
1: The other thing that is reinforcing the way scope should be transported are the manufacturers. I mean, you're going to damage the scope if you don't transport it in the right way. Carrying it in your hands is not appropriate either direction, soiled or clean. And again, making sure the coiling is appropriate, but it's not just OSHA, but it's the manufacturers that drive this too. Thanks, Adam, for letting me fit that in. Oh yeah,
2: no problem. Absolutely, it's an excellent point. Um, and then when we, when you get to the decontamination area, so we've done pretty much all the steps of the point of use treatment, and now we're getting into the sterile processing or into the endoscopy area where this flexible scope is going to be processed. There's a new step initially for the leak tester and yep. testing specifically the leak tester output. Can you talk a little bit about the sure. what that new standard says and what we need to change based on what we have and what we've historically been doing, and then what the new standards are telling us?
1: So soil transport, the scope makes its way to the processing area, wherever that is. And again, the reinforcement is it doesn't matter if the processing room's right next door, across the hall, a mile away in another building, you do the same thing every time. So once the scope gets there, the first step is leak testing. There's been various leak testers that people have used over the years. There's manual handheld ones with a bulb, and then there's automated ones, different brands, different models. Similar to monitoring with PMs and the functioning of any equipment, we're asking now in ST91 that leak testers deserve that same level of quality control so that we need to make sure the PSI is correct, not just that it makes a sound and you can tell that it's on because you hear a motor running or you hear a depress a pin and hear a whoosh sound. We need to know that it's delivering the correct PSI. If it doesn't deliver the correct PSI, you could be missing some of the leaks. And every leak is significant. So we've stated that every day that they are in use, leak testers need to be quality checked to make sure they're delivering the correct PSI. Some of the automated ones do it every time you turn them on. You need to look at the instructions for the automated ones and see if that is the case. If not, and for the handhelds and the others, there are options available to check the pressures, the PSI coming off of these leak testers.
0: Yeah, I guess it would be, you know, appropriate to let people know that obviously we're from Healthmark and we do have a product that they could use for some of those leak testers to uh, to properly test their leak tester PSI as you as you're mentioning. It is very important. It's actually one of those things that we used to have, I don't know if this ever happened to you, John or or Adam, but we had a endoscope repair company. It was a third party, not the OEM. And they suggested the same thing, only this was years and years ago before I was aware of any sort of commercial uh, device option. or option Yeah, yeah to yeah. test for this yeah. PSI. So our clinical engineering department kind of rigged their own PSI measuring device into the existing Olympus MU-1, which, of course... We're not recommending that. That's not appropriate, but it was what our clinical engineers did because there wasn't a commercial option available. But I can guarantee you, Olympus would not recognize that as an acceptable way of modifying their device. So that's why I wanted to make sure that people out there are aware that there are now devices available for such leak tester testing, if you will. So that being said, I think we covered all the points we wanted to, John, on this episode, and unless there's anything else that jumps out at you that you forgot to mention, I definitely will give you that time now if you'd like.
1: Yep. So the only thing in follow-up to what you just said that I would reinforce to everyone is our practices need to be based on a combination of three different things, manufacturer's instructions for use, national standards and guidelines, and your own written policies. But your own written policies need to be based on IFUs and the standards and guidelines. So, for example, the direction for calibration of leak testers is not coming from the manufacturers, but it is coming from standards and guidelines. So you need to pay attention to that just because the manufacturer doesn't have it. It is in the standards and guidelines. So if you say you're an institution that's following ames 91 then you need to have that in your practice. Excellent.
0: I think that pretty much wraps it up. That was a great follow-up point though. I appreciate that. And also your time for sharing your expertise on ST91, such a big and important document in our industry right now. And we hope that you're getting a lot out of this podcast series. We will be doing more, I think even some more with John and Marianne. So look forward to uh, releasing those as well. Thanks again, guys. All opinions expressed on this show are those of the presenters. Before using any medical device, it is important to review the device manufacturer's instructions for use.